I've said it often, and it is true, I think, that there, if there is one thing that we feel is lacking or inadequate in our Christian life, it's our prayer life. And I don't know too many people who ever really feel like that they have a, an effective, meaningful prayer life. We all have a tinge of guilt when it comes to how we're doing in our prayer life. And this is what this uh, text is about tonight, beginning at chapter 5, verse 13. You may want to use a worksheet. I, um, I know they, probably some of you didn't get one because you were in the choir. We won't take a whole lot of time trying to get them out, but you, if you need one, you want to raise your hand, we'll get you one. The fifth chapter of the book of James, beginning in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Before I say any other thing, I, I, can, I imagine tonight that there's not a single one of us here who would not like to be able to pray like Elijah and believe that I could pray and shut up heaven for three and a half years and then pray and it would rain. Um, I think that has to be one of the most um, amazing things that, you know, to, to, to know that you have prayer could have that kind of effect with God. But I know how you, we do. We pass it off and say, well, that's Elijah. But notice that he was a man with a like nature as ours. He wasn't any different than we are, except that by prayer he was able to lay hold on God. Now James is known in the first century as a man of prayer. It's interesting that even though he is the brother of Jesus, he is not really known for that. And when the New Testament talks about James, it doesn't make a big deal out of the fact that he was a brother of Jesus. But it does make a big deal of the fact that he was a man of prayer. And it is true that prayer punctuates the life of James. Tradition has it that he is nicknamed Old camel knees. Now I don't know whether you uh, make a you know a study of camel knees or not, <laughs> but 
If you've ever noticed that a camel spends a lot of time on his knees, that's the way they rest. And therefore their knees are calloused and baggy, the skin is stretched. And tradition has it that James prayed so often and he spent so much time on his knees that they were calloused and stretched and baggy like a camel's. Thus, he was called old camel knees. He, was, he spent more time on his knees than he did on his feet. Looking back over his epistle, it is obvious that he had a great deal to say about prayer. In the first chapter, as he talks about the troubles that come in life and the trials, he asks, is there anyone who lacks wisdom concerning how to deal with trouble? And he'd like to see beyond the trouble and get God's perspective? Let him ask of God. Let him be a man of prayer. As he comes to the fourth chapter, as we studied that fourth chapter, and he deals with the problems that exist in relationships, he makes this statement. He says, you have not because you ask not. Obviously, James would be like the person who had a dream one night and he dreamed that in heaven there were all of these beautiful uh, gifts wrapped and, and, and tied with a beautiful bow. And he asked someone in heaven, he said, whose name is on those, is those gifts? And someone in heaven looked to see his name was on the gifts. And he said, well, what are in those packages? What are in those gifts? And someone in heaven replied, all of those gifts are what you could have had if you had only asked. James is a man who believes that heaven has reserved so many wonderful things for the person who will ask. Yours had you asked of the Father. And when we come to this text, Seven times he mentions prayer in six verses. And what he's doing is letting us peek into his closet and see old camel knees as he encounters God in prayer and as he lays hold upon God's altar. Now some instruction concerning prayer from James. Four areas. First, he says, Is anyone suffering? As we noticed last week, it means smitten with trouble or afflicted in home or at school. Are you having trouble? Is anyone having trouble? Is anyone in distress? I just came from a class on stress. And the common consensus in our class there is that we all encounter in everyday life those things that... that give stress and, and trouble to us. Is, anyone, is there anyone who doesn't have trouble? He said, anyone, is there anyone smitten with trouble? Let him pray. Let him ask God. Let him pray. He doesn't say, let him pray to be healed, but just let him pray. And the implication is that he, in this prayer, he may be asking God for strength. Now, God does not rescue us out of trouble. It would be the worst thing that God could do, perhaps, to some of us, is to rescue us out, to airlift us out of the valleys of trouble. But He does give strength and He does give grace in the midst of trouble. So He says, let him pray if he's in trouble. Second, 
Is anyone physically sick? And the word means at the point of death. Is there anyone who has exhausted all physical means of survival? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Two areas then, those who are in trouble and those who are physically sick. And then he says in verse 13, those who are being potentially sick. Look at verse 16 again. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Now, I think what James is talking about here is this, that there is a certain amount of therapy that comes when we're together and we, you know, have what is called in the psychological world a catharsis. It's what this lady was talking about this morning. Were you not, were you touched by that? Were you, that was a heavy, heavy testimony. I think the thing that impressed me most about that testimony was that that there are so many people who feel like they have no one to share with. And everybody else, it is true, everybody else is busy. And You won't tell me about your trouble, let me tell you about mine. And we just kind of get the conversation turned around. And there is a certain amount of therapy just in a catharsis, that is, in just turning inside out to someone. But when he talks about confessing our sins to one another, what he's saying is that if a person carries around with him all the time bitterness and and, uh, anger, maybe not just towards someone else, but bitterness and anger toward life in general, and he doesn't have anybody with whom he can share that and receive prayer in that, he's headed for trouble. And so, I mean, he's headed for what we just talked about in our class, stress disease. What the New Testament would talk about is spiritual, uh, you know, spiritual problems. And so he's saying if there is that potential, before you get sick and you have that stuff that you're carrying around that's anger and bitterness and resentment and jealousy, get with somebody that you trust and, 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 get, and, and talk about that and get prayer about that. And then there's a fourth area. It's called daily specific needs. Now in verse 16, he uses a word that's not found anywhere else in this text. And when he translates the word prayer, it translates specific petitions, asking specifically with specific results in mind. Now what he's saying is that that there is nothing in your life that is too small or too great for prayer. I had this lady come to my church one time in a lay renewal, and, and she talked about the fact that, that, that we need to just you know, pray about everything. And she gave this illustration. She said, one day I, I, uh, I lost an old shoe that I like to wear. He said, it, you know, she must have been a housekeeper about like me. He said, he said I, I searched for that old shoe and said, finally I decided, I just said, Lord, help me find that old shoe. And she found it under the couch, you know. And she felt like the Lord directed her there. And she said, when I reached under the couch and found that old shoe, she said, I held it up and said, thank you, Jesus. Well, that sounds kind of hokey to me. I mean, you know, do something like that. What, what, you know, I've come to believe this, that 
that even in, in, in that kind of thing, there is nothing too small to pray about. So whatever there is in your life, you know, that you're dealing with, decision of any kind, small or great, specific prayer, specifically made, with specific results in mind. And he said this, now watch, he said, the effective prayer of a righteous man gets tremendous results, and that word effective there is a word that we get the word energy from. And what he's saying is that there is added an ingredient that turns something average into something fantastic. Now, I realize that a lot of times when I pray, and when I preach that, uh, you know, that, that you've heard everything that's been said 10 jillion times before. And I live under the pressure of the fact that, that uh, I was sharing with a person this week talking about you know, how in the world do the preachers get up four times a week and preach, you know, and, and, and say something different all the time. Well, you don't. You don't say anything different what you've, you know, said before. And, and I get the feeling a lot of times, and I'm kind of getting a feeling tonight that, that what I'm saying, you've heard so many times, it just kind of, well, yeah, he's saying that. Let me show you something. There's not a single person here tonight who would not like to turn your prayer life into something fantastic. And if I... You know, if, if, if I could convince you tonight that there is an added ingredient that you could add to your prayer life, kind of like an additive you add to your gasoline, and it turned your prayer life to, from something average to something supernatural, you'd be sitting on the edge of your pew to get a hold of that. Most of your prayer life and my prayer life is average or sub-average. I mean, what have you accomplished in prayer in the last six months of your life? I mean, be honest about it. So that if there is an added ingredient that you could inject into your prayer life, supposing you had one, and it would turn that average prayer life into a supernatural, fantastic experience, wouldn't you want a part of that? That's what he's talking about in this text. And there are three specific things that can happen to make your prayer life effective. Let me give you those three. How can my, how can my prayer life be effective? How can something average become something supernatural? That's what he's talking about. Number one, this is the, this is the main thing. First thing is you must know the Lord. Now that seems pretty simple and I want to show you something. You must know God. Augustine said, listen to this, grant me Lord to know and understand which is first. To call on thee or to praise thee. And again, to know thee or to call on thee. Now, now me, let me catch you up what he's saying. He's saying, which should be first? To call on God for something or to praise Him? In the mechanics of prayer, which should come first? And then just kind of as, as an afterthought, he said, or which is first? 
to know thee or to call on thee? And then he answers his question. For who can call on thee not knowing thee? For he that knoweth thee not may call on thee as other than thou art. Now let me tell you what he said. He said, how can you call on God if you don't know God? Because if you don't know God, then you may ask God something that God is not bound to to answer. You see what I'm saying? So that the important thing, the first thing you see in prayer is not learning how to pray, it's learning what God is and what God is like. For really prayer is just a response to the nature of God. That's the way life is. He said, we love Him because He first loved us so that our love of God is just our response to God's love for us. God said, be ye holy for I am holy or as I am holy. What He's saying is that our holiness should be our response to His holiness. So that in all of life, what we do is just in response to what He is. So that prayer is really a response to my understanding of what God is, you see. Now let me see if I can give you an illustration. There are some things that my children know better than to ask me. I mean, they might ask me for something, but they know better than to ask me for that. They know they're wasting their breath. There's some things, if they know me, they would never ask of me. Now there's some things that a guy, you know, a guy, I stand out here one day, stand right out here on the sidewalk, and an old guy came walking by and he said, can you give me, you know, could you get me, give me a quarter so I can get a drink? He wasn't talking about pop, you know. And, and he, you know, some wino. Now, he didn't know who I was or he'd never asked me that, you see. Well, he might have, but I don't think, he, if he'd have known who I was, he'd have never bothered to ask me that question. Now, the, re- the, the reason why so many of our prayers go unanswered is because we just don't know God. For if we knew God, and if we know God, there are some things you and I would never ask God or ask of God. Now, let me just give you quickly, now, kind of parenthetically, a couple of things we need to know about God. First of all, we need, let's just flip back to the first chapter of James, and and, and I want to show you verse 5. It says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Let Let me share some things that we know about God. First of all, we know that God is a giving God. That word is not an adverb that describes an action of God. It is an adjective that describes the character of God. God is a giving God. He gives to all men generally. That means that He gives not just to the super-Christians. Sometimes I think, well, you know, people think, well, if if I were, you know, uh, as great a Christian as He is, and that's why we, you know, a lot of folks ride off to these people and ask, you know, folks to go up in towers and pray for them. Listen, you have as much right and access to God as, as He does, or they do. 
He gives to all men generally. And it's not on the basis of, you know, that you have a, a, you know, kind of a better standing or you're on a different level than the rest. The amazing thing about the New Testament is, is that man, you and I as a Christian, have the same access to God that Paul has. Gives to all men generally. He gives to all men generously. What that means is that God gives us everything that is necessary for our lives to live a fulfilled life, and He wants to do that. God is a giving God. And I think it's sometimes we, we, we think, well, God, you know, is this stingy person that, that, that uh, we have to beg and convince. He is a giving God, and He stands on tiptoes, anxious to give. He gives to all men generously, and He gives to all men graciously. That, and, 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 and James says He gives without reproach. And what that means is that God doesn't make you feel stupid because you ask Him for it. I shared one day with my guys at noon that first time I ever borrowed money. And I, uh, I went with my father, and he was going to sign my note to, at the bank, and I was going to borrow some money. Went in, this, this guy, he's now deceased, the meanest guy I ever dealt with, ever knew. He snarled like a, like a bulldog. I mean, he, and, and I sat down there, and I'd come in to borrow some money. I thought he was, I was doing him a favor. I was going to borrow money and pay interest. He spent about 30 minutes uh, just ripping me about having to come in there and borrow money. I mean, he felt, he made me feel like an absolute failure, a dog, you know. I was in there trying to borrow money, and he was telling me how, what a, you know, lousy person I was to come in there and borrow money. I was about to say, hey, wait, forget it. I'll go somewhere else to borrow money. And, and what was happening was that he was going to give me the money, but he's going to make me feel bad for asking for it. And the wonder of God is that he wants you to come to him and he wants to give you what you need and he doesn't make you feel bad because you had to ask for it. And you can come to him, and I can come to him, and I can, and I can, I can tell him how you know, poor I am and how needy I am, and he doesn't care, see. And he doesn't scold us for that. And I can come back again and again with the same old sin, and I can confess that same old sin, and he doesn't make me feel bad about confessing the same sin and I confessed the day before because he's already forgotten it. So that he gives graciously. Now, what do I know about God? Well, I know this about Him. I know that He is a giving God, and I know, secondly, that He's a concerned God. Now, watch this. He's concerned about my circumstances, but He's more concerned about my character. Now, can I say it again? He's concerned about my circumstances, but He's more concerned about my character, and He's not going to take me out of some circumstance that I don't like if that circumstance is going to mold my character. And i got to understand this about God, that even though He's concerned about the circumstances of my life, He's more concerned that I become like His Son. And so I can trust Him even with those things that come in life that are hurtful, that seem hurtful to me and distract me. All right, now how am I going to 
improve the effectiveness of my prayer. I got to know God. Now, how am I going to get to know God without getting to know His Word? Let me tell you something, folks. This is a gospel truth. Your prayer life is not any stronger than your devotional life. That is, your prayer life is not going to get beyond what you know about God's Word. And they go hand in hand. Now, everybody wants to have some magical formula how they can know God better. Let me tell you, there is no magical formula. You can, order, you can write off and order these um, tapes that can teach you how to speak Spanish and French in 30 days just by putting it under your pillow at night and letting it play. You believe that stuff? I got some land in the swamps I'd like to sell you. you that just never happens. And there are no easy lessons of how to get to know God. It comes about by getting into His Word. So if you want to improve your prayer life, you're going to have to improve your knowledge of God's Word. And when you improve your knowledge of God's Word, you're going to improve your knowledge of God. All right, second. How can I improve my prayer life? I can begin to pray specifically. Let me make a suggestion. It's a suggestion that I've uh, had to make to myself is this, is that, you know, if you have something you can pray about specifically, don't go to anything else till you get an answer to that. And the question is that people ask is, how can I know when to stop praying? Well, there are three ways to know when you can stop praying. When you get the answer you're asking for, you stop praying or when you get the assurance of the answer you're asking for, or when you get no, you can't have the answer. That's when you can stop praying. Now, if I'm going to pray specifically, I'm going to zero in on something, and I'm going to pray specifically for that one thing, until I get the answer I'm asking for or the assurance of the answer that I'm going to get it later or that I've got no for an answer. And I'm not going to go on to anything else. Our kids teach us that. I think I've told you this story Dr. McGarman used to tell when I was a student at Southeastern. He said they had three sons and his wife was pregnant and they were hoping for a girl. In fact, the littlest boy said, I'm going to start praying for a sister. Now they said, they, 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 Dr. McGarman, who is the godliest man I've ever known, said, well, now, we, had, we were in kind of caught in a rotten hard place. We, we, we teaching our kids to pray for something specifically. Do you tell your little boy, now, let's don't pray. You know, let's just pray and let God give us who He wants to give us, boy or girl. What do you do? And he said, the, the longer it went, he said, the, the, the more our kid, our little boy, the youngest boy, was praying for a sister. And finally he said, we're going to have a sister. God's going to give us a baby sister, me a baby sister. Going to be a girl. Now he's thinking, now do I tell him that he could be disappointed, not pray that way? Well, you understand what I'm saying? What, what do you do? He said, man, I was in a jam. And he said to compound the problem, one day he came in, he said, you know, I'm praying that God well, give me a sister and that she's redheaded. <laughs> he said, I don't know where she got that. But he said, I looked at my wife and I looked at her and she wasn't redheaded and she looked at me and I wasn't. He's a Canadian. He's dark complexed. He said, we didn't have a redheaded person in our family. 
And he said, every day we'd have our prayer time. My son would say, God, give us a baby. Give me a baby sister and a redheaded one. I mean, he's, every time he prayed for that. And he said, now, when that child was born, he said, I stood there and I looked through that glass. He said, you guessed it. It was a what? A girl. And he said, while I was standing there, one of my relatives was standing by me, and he said kind of under his breath, wonder where that kid got her rare hair, red hair. <laughs> wonder where that kid got her red hair. I could say something, but I won't at that point. Now, our, our, our kids teach us that. Now, now, do you pray specifically? I mean, do you zero in on something and you stay on that until God says, okay, you can have it? Or He gives you the assurance, or He says, now go on to something else. The answer is no. All right, third, this prayer must be filled with faith. I think it was George Mueller who said that the requirement of faith-filled prayer is that you're never surprised when it happens. It's ne you're never surprised when it happens. Isn't it amazing that when it happens, we're always surprised? You're never surprised when it happens. Now, when Jesus gave His little talk on, he's, He gave His lesson on Prayer to move mountains. Do you ever notice that the next statement after that, after he talked about prayer that removes, that removes mountains, he, he said, Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they shall be granted to you. Now do you see that do you see the paradox of that statement? This is what Jesus is saying, Ted will paraphrase. You believe that you have it and you'll get it. Now that seems kind of weird to me. But I made a discovery not too long ago and that is that, that oftentimes in the Bible, God speaks of the future in the past tense. The 53rd chapter of Isaiah is a perfect example of that for it says, he talks about this Messiah who bore our stripes, by our stripes here we were healed, by his stripes we were healed, all that kind of thing. And he's talking about the Messiah that was coming 800 years in the future, but he talks about it as though it already happened. Now the reason why he uses prophecy as though it were in the past tense is this that he's so sure it's going to happen, he uses it in the past tense as though it already has because once it's history, it cannot be changed. Once something's happened, it can't be unhappened. You see. Now, I was sharing that concept with my friend up in Periton last week and he gave me this tremendous insight. He said, you know, Gerald, he said, one day I was reading in the book of Romans and God spoke to me this word. He said, He said, My entrance, God sees my entrance into heaven as a past event. Now you think about that a while. That God sees my entrance into heaven 
as a past event. That is, with God there is no time, no past, present, or future. So my entrance into heaven as a saved person to God is so real and so secure, it's already happened to Him. You see what I'm saying? Now watch this carefully. When you pray like Jesus said, with faith believing, the believing is the receiving. That is, when you pray by faith, God sees it as a past event. It's already happened, and we can claim it, you see. And that's what Norman Grubb talks about over there when he talks about stating our faith. That once you have faith and you state, you make the statement of faith, then you never should go back and ask for it again and never should question. You should, you should, you should deal with it as a past event. Now, you understand what I'm saying? All right, now how to make your prayer effective? You need to know God and know what God's Word says about Him. Secondly, you need to begin to make specific requests and with the faith that claims it as a past event. All right, now, some application. I'll get on out of here with this application. Four things I want you to jot down. Number one, prayer is to be continuous. It's not to be used only in an emergency. Prayer is to be continuous. Now, I, I talked one Sunday about oscillating fans, you know. The reason they call them oscillating fans is because they oscillate. And they, it seemed like his wind was always blowing on my sister, you know. And it was, every time I looked, the fan was over there, you know, as it oscillated. Our prayer life is like that. Do you have a continuous prayer life? Do you have a consistent prayer life? I mean, when you get up in the morning, on Monday morning, is a part of what happens on Monday morning a time of prayer? Is that as much a part as getting ready to go to work or school? Or is it kind of an emergency thing with you. When the Bible says that we're to pray without ceasing, that word is, is like having an incessant cough. That's what that, where we get that word. So that when somebody says, I coughed all night, he didn't mean he coughed all night. He meant that he had this incessant cough that just kept reoccurring all night long. It seemed like he coughed all night. To pray without ceasing is to just have as a part of your life this continuous, incessant prayer. Second, prayer is designed for every part of your life. Prayer is designed for every part of your life. So that whatever your life is about, prayer is designed for that. Now I think that some of us think that, that prayer is just for church stuff, you know. It's a part of your dating life. It's a part of what business you're going to go into. It's a part of what you do tomorrow as you set your schedule. It's whatever your life is, prayer is designed for that. It's designed for these lights. It's blinking on, so pray them out. Third. Prayer is not a substitute for intelligent thinking. I want you to underline that. 
Prayer is not a substitute for intelligent thinking. There are some things we don't have to pray about. We already know the answer to those things. It's not a substitute for intelligent thinking. And finally, this is the beauty, the beautiful. Prayer is not for the perfect, but the imperfect. I don't know about you, but oftentimes, you know, I start to pray and I just get this, you know, what right do I have to pray? I mean, I hadn't done anything for God, you know, today. I haven't witnessed. I haven't led anybody to Christ. I haven't shared my faith. And, you know, I just get all this guilt, you know. I mean, what right do I have to pray? The only right I have to pray is the right of access through the blood of Jesus. I mean, His blood covers my life. And prayer is not for the perfect. It's for the imperfect. It's for you and for me. Elliot, who was martyred by the Alka Indians, had made this statement. God is on the throne. We are on, we are on His footstool so that we're only a knee distance away from God. We're only a knee distance away from God. Let's pray together.